Dear Founder, as you know, there's no blueprint for entrepreneurship. You wear so many hats, you burn the midnight oil, you pour your heart and soul into everything that you do. But without a doubt, the journey is worth every single second that you put into it. I'm Lindsay Pinchuk, host of the Dear Founder podcast. I say this because I've lived it for over a decade. I started my first company with $500 in my pocket and a baby in my belly. I grew it and I sold it all. This podcast is my weekly letter to you. We'll talk all things starting, growing, nurturing, and in some cases, even selling a business. Together with some of my closest contacts, I'm here to help you find your own success, whatever that means to you. The ride as a founder is the ride of your life. So come on in and join me for another episode that will get you one step closer to reaching your own founder goals. Welcome back to the latest episode of Dear Founder. I can't wait for you to meet today's guest, Rahama Wright, founder of Shea Lane. She is going to blow your mind. But before I introduce you to her, I want to let you know that in a couple of weeks, I'll be kicking off my first ever small business marketing boot camp. Just last week, we wrapped up a full-on social media challenge, teaching you how to get the most out of your social in 2022. This February, our workshop will wrap the social media piece up into a strategic marketing approach to grow your business. A lot of you listening have limited resources, both people and budget, and wonder how you're going to make an impact and drive sales. My small business marketing bootcamp is going to help you get started and also help you to make it happen. Check out the link in my show notes for more or visit lindsaypinchuk.com to register. So today is February 1st, and it is also the start of Black History Month. I am beyond honored to have Rahama Wright, founder of Shea Lean, here as our guest today. She is truly the epitome of someone who is making history and forever impacting the lives of women and women of color here in the U.S. and around the world. This interview legit had me on the edge of my seat. I cannot wait for you to hear this story. After serving in the Peace Corps, Rahama Wright launched her company, Shea Lean. She is a DC-based social impact beauty brand, which creates pure plant-based shea butter body care products that create living wage jobs for women in Ghana. Before even knowing what her product was, she knew what the problem was that she wanted to solve. Rahama is redefining beauty, proving that nourishing our skin with the purest, most lush plant-based ingredients does not preclude us from empowering our sisters across the world. Through her brand, she is reimagining the way that we do business to build a more equitable future for all. Like I said, I can't wait for you to meet Rahama. Hold on to the edge of your seats. She is an incredible storyteller and has so much wisdom to impart on all of us here today. Truly, get ready to take some notes. Welcome, Rahama Wright, to Dear Founder. All right, today on Dear Founder, we have Rahama Wright of Shay Yaleen, and she is going to share her story with us. I was really intrigued by this story because this is a company that is founded upon a principle that is shared very often here at Dear Founder, and that is giving back. Mm-hmm. And I love, love, love what you've done and also how big you've become in the process because you have <laughs> a real big business. So welcome to Dear Founder. Thank you so much for having me, Lindsay. I'm really excited to be here and chat with you. 
this is the first conversation I'm having in the new year. So it's a great way to launch the new year. Oh, after good. After kind of like taking a step back and taking a break after the busy holiday season. Good. Well, you know what? And I hope from this conversation, a lot of the people I've been interviewing have said to me after this conversation, it's kind of opened their eyes to other things within their business. So I hope that you find some enlightenment in going back and revisiting your own story. So no, absolutely. And also hopefully hearing a little bit of yours as well. <laughs> yeah, of course. So I would love for you to kick us off though, and really just share a little bit about you, about your brand, about you know what you've done and how you've gotten to where you've gotten today. Yeah. Well, I, I often say I had no business starting a business. I was in my early 20s. I had just returned back to the U.S. after serving in the Peace Corps. And I served in a community health center in West Africa in Mali. And I was a health educator. Um, And I joined Peace Corps right after college. And even though I have West African heritage from Ghana on my mom's side, this was the very first time I actually spent uh, time in a village, in an African village. And it was both an eye-opening, a huge, tremendous learning experience, but it was also very infuriating and frustrating um, because I saw incredible individuals, incredible women um, who had just amazing life stories and had all these wonderful dreams that they wanted to do, yet they were limited financially because of where they lived, because of so many issues around uh, lack of infrastructure, Uh, you know, not being able to do things easily because even just to create dinner, you have to walk a few miles to collect firewood and come back, or you have to walk a few miles to get access to clean water and come back to your house and make a meal or, you know, bathe your child. And so that was the frustrating part. It was just realizing that a lot of the the women and community members that I grew to love deeply and dearly just really were given the short end of the stick. Um, and for me, uh, you know, I'm the eldest of five kids. So I've always had a lot of responsibility from a very young age and I'm a problem solver. I like to look at a situation and say, you know, not be down and depressed, but instead say, how can I solve this? Or what's the solution? Cause I believe everything has a solution. If you have, the time, the effort, and the resources, you can get to a solution. And so here I am, early 20s, had no business saying this to to the women in my community, but I was like, well, let's let's find something to help you make some money. (laughs) And that took me down this journey of researching income-generating activities. And prior to joining the Peace Corps, I actually did a stint in Burkina Faso, where I interned at the U.S. Embassy in Ouagadougou. And during that time, I started learning about this product called shea butter. And I had used shea butter. I, you know, I was one of those teenagers that spent quite a bit of time at the mall trying creams and, you know, perfumes and all of that. That was like one of my favorite activities. uh, Oh my God, you and my tween daughter would get along perfectly. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) And I, you know, when I was younger, I just had like a room full of all of these things, you know, skincare products that I would buy. And so I was familiar with shea butter. I knew about it because I bought it in the U.S. Had no idea that this raw material came uh, from Africa. And it's actually a natural resource that's exclusive to 
uh, roughly 21 countries. The tree only grows in these countries. And women are the harvesters. They're the ones who, you know, leave their homes, walk out into the woods, collect the fruit, bring it back to their homes, and then extract the oil that's contained in the seeds. And so being exposed to this supply chain in Burkina Faso, I would wonder to myself, well, is this something that women in my community can do? And is it something that we can organize around um, to help them generate income from it? So that's what sparked this idea around taking a natural resource in an African village and then bringing it to market in the U.S. And the reason why I say I had no business doing this is because I had never taken a business class. I did not know anything about product development, marketing, uh, sales. Um, I was not a salesperson. And, and so I was very ill-prepared. So imagine, you know, getting off the plane, uh, trying to get settled in Washington, D.C., uh, which is where I live now, and having this vision to create this organization that would connect the dots between what was happening in rural villages in West Africa and how it translated to a beauty product on a shelf uh, in the U.S. And so that was the beginning and the start of my journey. So I find this so fascinating for so, on so many levels. Your story is amazing. And you're, I mean, you're, you. you're talking about places that I've like never even heard of that. I mean, and I am not like such a sheltered person. I'll be honest. Like I, I'm not like, and I, I just, the fact that you did this after college, I think just says a lot about your, you as a person that that's what you wanted to do upon graduating. But the thing that I'm the most fascinated about is that you wanted to start a product to first solve a social problem, yeah, not to solve a problem for the end user of the product. Yes. And that to me is amazing and fascinating that that's the, the business model that you had, that your business model was, I want to help these women make money and we'll figure out whatever the like marketing and whatever the whoever is using. I don't even know who's going to use it or what's going to happen. But right. we need to figure out a way to make money for this village and these women. And that's who you, that was who your number one customer was when mm-hmm. you started this, which is mind blowing to me because that is not how many brands are started. Right. True. And so that takes me to my next question or that I want to add, that I want to touch upon and ask you is, you know, you have this product that is shea butter and it's, you know, it's a, it's a beauty, health and wellness, personal care item. And you and I both know there are many personal care items on the shelves everywhere. Right. Mm -hmm. But the fact that your product does what it does to solve this problem, that Mm -hmm. is your story. Yes. And that is why people buy it. So I want you to kind of talk about a little bit about that and how you took your story mm-hmm. and turned it around to make it so that there was a product that people could buy. I mean, to say that you had no business plan, most people don't. And that's, mm-hmm. you know, most of us entrepreneurs do not have a plan. Um, so 
who cares about that? But I, I want you to kind of talk about how you figured it out. Like, how did you figure this out? Because there's a lot of moving pieces. Forget the marketing and the finance and, and whatever. It's the actual mm-hmm. creating of the product too. Yeah. No, I think you're right. Most people don't think about how to start a social or solve a social problem with a business idea. At least when I first started Shaolin, and that was back in 2005. So it's been a while. I think now it. It is. People want to uh, buy products that are not creating, you know, slavery in Asia or, you know, people working in sweatshops or uh, harming our environment. I think it's much more mainstream now than it was, you know, a little over a decade ago. I do think that for me, I was probably ahead of the curve in some ways in that I wouldn't be a business owner if I wasn't solving a social issue because of my upbringing Um, and the fact that, you know, I come from an immigrant family and I understand that, you know, we are part of um, a global community and what we do here in the U.S. has huge impacts on people in so many different places around the world. And what happens around the world also impacts us as well. And I think we've learned that with COVID. Um, and so, you know, to your question, how did, how did I start all of this? I Googled everything. I wish it was much more complicated than that, but no, but that's again, why I, I want to ask you, I want the honest <laughs> answer. And I knew that that was going to be what you said, because most entrepreneurs are resourceful enough to figure it out. Yeah. But I want so, you, I want our audience to hear you say it. Yeah, honestly. I mean, again, you have to think about when I first started. I knew nothing about the beauty industry. And honestly, I'm an outsider. You know, I I didn't intern at, you know, a luxury beauty brand in New York after college and then work my way up and then figured out I could launch a skincare product or I didn't, you know, start an amazing blog that talked about beauty and then eventually transitioned that into a beauty product. And I think that because I started as an outsider, And because I started this business, really looking at the impact on women in this very specific supply chain, um, the only outcome was to create impact, if if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because the foundation of Shailene's business model is how do we create equality for all? How do we create sustainability? How do we help a woman, um, you know, pay for medicine for her children? or buy school supplies so that her kid can go to school or put food on the table. And I think because of that, I did work backwards. And also because of that, it took me a much longer time. If I was just simply trying to create a beauty product, I think I would have gotten to scale a very long time ago. But I spent, you know, quite a bit of time, six, seven years, just on the supply side, really working on organizing, looking at how to set up processing centers, you know, with the women that we work with. In some communities, we had to set up access to electricity and access to clean water. All of that stuff takes time. But it was very intentional because the why and the reason behind Shailene is really centering uh, the work of women and not only centering their work, but giving them access to living wages. That's really important to me. Um, I don't want to sell a product that's not giving women the ability to be financially free. Um, So I spent a lot of time um, on the supply side, organizing, uh, 
really understanding the challenges women were having. So everything from quality issues, access to production equipment, access to safety equipment, um, training them on everything from making the product in in a safer way that would ensure quality, but also understanding basic business skills. So, you know, how do you cost this out? How do you price it? How do you make sure that every batch you sell, it's profitable to you. And so the, all of that work takes time. So I spent quite a bit of time on, on that side. And honestly, I would say in the last seven years has been the market side and building and growing a brand. And that was a lot harder for me, to be very honest. Um, I really, I understood because I grew up in international development world and space, and I studied you know, political science and international affairs. So that was very comfortable for me working on the supply side. The market side has actually been the bigger challenge. Everything from branding, packaging, um, how do we talk about our brand so that it makes sense to the customer? And to what you said earlier, Lindsay, what problem are we solving for the buyer? What problem are we solving for the customer? Because it's great to have a social mission. It's great to be doing this work. But at the end of the day, if no one buys the product, we can't achieve our ultimate mission. And so that was um, a a much more difficult transition for me is to put myself in more of that, you know, core business of marketing and selling and branding and positioning. And I would say the last three, four years, we've done far more better on that than we did when I initially started Jaylee. Okay. Well, we're going to get to that in a second, but the (laughs) one thing that I do want to ask you, and I know a lot of people are probably thinking about this is like, it's so amazing that you had this social mission that you wanted to accomplish, but you also needed to be able to fund it. And Mm -hmm. so how, how, when you were first starting, how did you fund what it was that you wanted to do? It took me a very long time to get access to capital to grow Shailene. Um, The first seven years was just, me working on jobs here and there and self-funding. And so I would have complete control and access to my schedule because I would do things like um, do an event and like work an event. And then I would use the money to like pay my bills. And then I also use money to, you know, buy something for the company. And so it was very self-funded. You know, I borrowed money from friends and family, um, I didn't have access to, you know, a huge network of wealthy individuals. And so that was all part of the funding journey was to eventually set up a business structure that could give me access to investors. And so when I initially launched Shailene, because I was on the supply side for so long, we were structured as a 501c3 nonprofit. And then in 2013, we pivoted and um, created a business that could then take on capital from investors. And my first investor was a fund in New York and they wanted to invest, their their investment thesis was investing in social businesses in Africa. And so it was called the Pan-African Investment Company and it was funded by Ron Lauder, Veste Lauder and Dick Parson. So that was my first round of capital. Um, And it was a significant chunk of capital that arrived just when we were starting to make inroads into retail. And I had gotten, you know, my first 
POs from stores at Whole Foods in the North Atlantic region. And I would say that time was an insane time for me as a founder. Um, you know, I, I didn't know the first thing about fundraising. I'd never heard the term cap table. It was incredibly new. And honestly, I didn't have the right support behind me to really understand what I was getting myself into. Um, and so some of the advice I give to, to people now when it comes to funding is making sure that you are getting access to smart capital and not simply capital. Because yes, I 100% needed the funding to grow and scale so that we could increase our inventory and build marketing and support, you know, our accounts, our big accounts that we had at Whole Foods and all of these things. But I also still needed support in terms of running a CPG company. It's incredibly difficult. It's incredibly capital intensive. Um, it, it's not simply putting products in a package and putting it on shelf. There's a lot of nuance. There's a, a lot of tricky things that you have to navigate. And even though I had capital and I had my first few accounts, I didn't have that part. And I actually think that it handicapped me for a little bit of time. And it wasn't until towards the end of 2017, uh, 2018, that things started to turn around because I was able to get uh, the most incredible advisor who grew up in the CPG world. And he really, uh, his name is Mike, he really um, helped me a lot to think strategically about how do you grow a CPG business um, in a more thoughtful way? And everything from product positioning, um, just because we were placed in Whole Foods, well, was that the best place for beauty product when most people go to Whole Foods for food? You know, maybe we needed to align more with a channel that was very beauty focused where people are actually going there for a beauty product. Um, and for example, I did a pivot and was able to get an account with MGM Resorts where they were using the products in their spa and they were using it in body care treatments. And so now I'm working with uh, spa technicians and massage therapists and doing trainings around why this product is so good for your skin and why it's good for a manicure or pedicure. And that was a game changer, honestly. Um, a totally it, different end use than yeah. what it was intended to be, I'm sure. Yeah. And we also looked at packaging and updating the packaging and becoming more upscale. And so that entire period of time was a huge pivot um, and really set us up for success in 2019, uh, where we were, you know, MGM became our largest account. We had some really interesting um, retail opportunities in the D.C. metro area. Uh, we had a retail space at Washington National Airport. Um, and so it, it was, you know, I, I feel like between 2014 to 2019, it was very rocky. And then all of a sudden things just started falling in place. And then COVID-19 hit. <laughs> Well, we're going to talk about COVID in a second, but I do want to, I, I do want to um, say thank you for sharing that about the funding because 
I agree with you. Like when I started my company, I didn't even think that I, I never took funding. I didn't have a product. So I had a very mm-hmm. different journey than you did because I was a service-based business. And so mm-hmm. I made the decision to bootstrap and I did, and, and, you know, I got sponsors. Like that was my funding. Like okay. our revenue was, I had a sponsorship model. And so that was how we made money. Um, and eventually brands ended up hiring us and that's, that's how we infiltrated our money. But I reached a point where I just couldn't go any further without Mm. any other help, which is why I ended up selling my business. But to your point, so many, I want to say people, but specifically women do not understand the ins and outs of raising capital and of fun and of financing. And, um, you know, these were terms very similar to what you just said, like cap table, angel investors, all these things. I didn't know any of that before I started my own company. And Mm -hmm. I think it's so important that we have these conversations so that women who are listening know and understand the opportunities that are out there for them and that you can raise money. And to your point, you are probably the 10th founder I've had on here who has said exactly what you said, which was don't just take money. You want to have investors who bring something else to the table and bring their experience to the table and can help you to expand your business, which is such sound advice. So thank you for sharing that. Um, Can I also just piggyback off of what you're saying too, when it comes to women and capital and kind of it's incredibly mysterious and you really don't know where to go or who to, or at least in my experience, who to talk to. I think it's not only not knowing the lingo and, you know, the verbiage and the acronyms, but it's also like, who can I talk to? And I don't come from a business family or background. Um, I didn't grow up, you know, steps from Wall Street where, you know, I didn't either. Yeah, talk about all of these things and it's over, you know, dinner conversation and things of that nature. But I also want to say an element too that we don't talk about is the, uh, and it's harder to put this into words because it's not in your face. But I felt during my process, there's this attitude of you should be grateful that you were even getting this opportunity. You should be grateful that you, um, you should just be thankful and grateful. And it's a dynamic that I think it's a power dynamic that I think we need to talk about when it comes to funding in general. And I think that for the founders listening, you are valuable in this process as well. You are contributing valuable uh, idea or eventually to the bottom line of your investor. And there has to, we have to normalize founders being empowered um, to feel deserving of funding that comes to them. And also not, not the, just taking it, right? Because yeah. it's being put in front, it has to be the right opportunity. Yeah. Because I felt like all the advice I was getting was like, oh my gosh, you're so lucky that they even want to invest in you. Why wouldn't you look at this deal? And, you know, I, I think before it was, there was a lot of emotions attached to it and it was an incredible learning experience. And I've, you know, been able to process a lot of that experience, but in hindsight, it wasn't the the best matchup to be quite honest. Um, Have I learned? Did it help me become a stronger business person? Absolutely. But it has also prepared me to ask better questions. Um, It's prepared me to understand that 
yes, I'm being vetted as a founder and entrepreneur, but I also need to vet my investors. Um, I need to talk to other people that they've invested in, see what that experience has been like. And I kind of felt like it was always, it was this environment of um, just not having the right people around to like talk about the process of actually getting capital. And so some of the advice I would give is not only understanding the fit um, and understanding whether or not this is a good partner, but it's also taking the time to seek and search for the right advisors. Um, And this is everything from, you know, just people that, not only people that you trust, because I have a lot of people that I trust, but this is a new space for them too. So they can't really give me advice. But someone who who knows enough about that space to give really honest advice. And the other thing too, is making sure you have a phenomenal accountant and the right lawyers, because those are also individuals who will help in that process of, you know, getting access to the capital, et cetera. Yes. Thank you a million times over for saying what you just said, because it goes not just with investors, but you know, and one day you will will hopefully be in this situation if this is where you want to be. But if you end up selling your business, it's the same thing with that as well. When you are selling your business, it's finding the right match for that as well. And really mm-hmm. asking the right questions and talking to people. And it, it's the same thing when you're taking money. If someone, you know, they're interviewing you just as much as you're interviewing them. And I agree with you that we as female founders need to put ourselves out there in a way that, that gives us the upper hand a bit more. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or coming you know, to the table with the, with the, uh, not just like I need power. Exactly. Yes. It's not just like yeah. I need from you, but it's like, this is what I bring to the table. And absolutely, you know, and you know, I've, I've talked to many people on the podcast, um, you know, who have fundraised and sold their businesses and, everyone kind of has these same feelings and they're definitely shared by myself as well as just Mm. to ask the questions and do the due diligence. And a lot of times we're so quick to just jump into the opportunity because we might need that capital or that, you know, that opportunity right there and then in that moment. And, um, but it's okay to take a step back for a minute because they really want you. And so you need to tell yourself that. Absolutely. Yes. Right. (laughs) And so I want to, what you just said, something you just brought up what I wanted to ask you next is you talked about advisors and you talked about Mike, your advisor who helped to put you on the map in, in a (laughs) bigger way and helped you with this pivot. And I, I will get into COVID in a second, but how did you find him? And what, what was that process like? Because to your point, you do need to have the right advisors, the right lawyers, the right accountants. You need to have people you trust with all of these elements in order to have a successful business. Yes. And um, it was completely by chance. Um, and it was very interesting because the process and journey of meeting Mike was not what I expected to give me access to the pool of people so that I could find the right fit in terms of an advisor. You know, I think a lot of us, when we first start our businesses or even long into the business journey, we go to 
all these events and we hear from speakers and we get like really, you know, inspired and the energy and you're so excited. 90% of the people I try to follow up with after one of those events doesn't go anywhere. Typically you don't get an answer back. I mean, let's just be completely honest. And I think it's a, it's a couple of things. I don't think anyone is ever intentionally mean or trying to ignore, but I think it's like people are busy. You know, you go to a conference, you do a great talk, you move on to the next thing, you know? And I think it's hard for for a founder, especially in the early days. I mean, I met, I would hear so many amazing people and they would say, reach out and follow up and go on LinkedIn and da, da, da. And I would do all of those things and I could get nothing from it. I couldn't get anyone to respond back to me. I mean, I think that was the number one thing is like being ignored. If you're going to be a founder, be okay with being ignored. <laughs> um, or if someone would follow up, but you know, the advice really what wasn't applicable for the questions I had. And it was always, it always felt like I was kind of like hitting my head up against a wall. And I, during the Obama administration was appointed to an advisory council on doing business in Africa. And I was the youngest member. I had the smallest business, but I also had a business that was very different from everyone else in that I was looking at how to incorporate women-owned cooperatives into global supply chains, really focusing on the beginning of the supply chain, which was uh, something that was very interesting to the administration at that time. Uh, They really wanted to lean into supporting women-owned businesses and businesses created by young people. What an honorable appointment. I mean, really and truly, like, Aren't you so proud of that? (laughs) I had, you know, yes, I am very proud of it, but I was also very terrified because. Of course, you're having (laughs) imposter syndrome. We all have it. But yeah, like, like, how did I get in this room? Like, I remember, I'll never forget the first meeting we had. I believe it was in Atlanta. This was in 2014. And it was our first time. It was at a African affairs conference. And it was like a quick huddle and Secretary Pritzker was there and we were all, you know, the advisory members who are available. I think there was a group of like maybe eight of us or maybe six. And we were all in the small room with her and we had to go around and like introduce ourselves really quickly. And I was so terrified to like say anything. (laughs) And so I remember because in kind of the government space is very serious. Yeah. And, you know, you have like secret service and it's like all these dignitaries. And I remember everyone was just like very like serious and, you know, introducing really quick. And of course they're representing like these huge companies. And here I come along and I'm like, and I, I think I said something like very cheeky and it made people laugh. Um, and, you know, related, I think I said something like, you know, my business, we, our whole, uh, our whole mission is to keep people very well moisturized, something like that, like very like silly, you know, and it, you know, it kind of like got some chuckles and took, you know, the seriousness down just a little bit. But I just remember I had that feeling every single time we had to do, um, a presentation or, give remarks. I always just had this like huge, like 
dread of feeling like, am I going to deliver? Am I going to live up to expectations? And, you know, fast forward, I was reappointed twice after that. And so I, because you're doing amazing things (laughs) and you know what you're doing. And it's not even just that, you know what you're doing. You figured it out. You figured out how to do what you're doing. It wasn't like someone told you how to do it. So you are an Mm -hmm. expert in what you do. Thank you. And that's, but that's (laughs) why you were reappointed, you know? And so if you're not going to give yourself some credit, I'm going to give you credit right now because it's really fucking amazing. I'm sorry. Like, thank you. That's like, I'm really blown away by not just the business you've created because that's amazing, but like the process that you took to get to the business that you created is just, it's very much a road less traveled by so Mm -hmm. many product-based businesses. And I'm like, of course you were reappointed because most people don't know how to go to Africa and farm the shea plant to get the butter to put in the product. I mean, you know how to do it and you've built an infrastructure to do it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And through that, thank you for saying that. Um, but through that process is how I met Mike. And okay. so during the first um, appointment of uh, council members, he was supporting the executive from Hershey that was appointed to the council. And we met on a trip with Secretary Pritzker uh, to Nigeria and Rwanda. And so we had these high level engagements with uh, the president of Nigeria at the time, as well as the president of Rwanda. And we flew um, to both countries. And, you know, when you travel with people, you, you know, there's a bond that happens because you're experiencing, um, you know, something very unique together. And yeah, we just hit it off. He, you know, his company was doing CPG and food, um, sourcing cocoa from Cote d'Ivoire and Ghana, and they were doing some sustainable sustainability work in Ghana. And he just said, you know, if there's anything I can ever do, let me know. I'm happy to help. And after the trip, you know, we all kind of went back to our day-to-day schedule. And uh, maybe a year and a half later. He reached out to me and said, you know, I'm, I decided to retire early and I'll have some time on my hands. And if you ever need help with anything, I would love to support you. And he has been an amazing advisor. I cannot even, it, it kind of, it was like the business before Mike and then after Mike is <laughs> like night and day. And his wife as well, they just both kind of rolled up their sleeves and you know, they've had phenomenal careers in corporate America, both of them, like very well accomplished individuals. And they've just kind of took me under their wing and helped me through some of some of the most difficult periods of the company, I will say, but also helped me establish and kind of like take advantage of some of the most incredible opportunities. And the most recent one was launching with Macy's this, this last year. Amazing. They were like integral to that process. I, I would agree with you wholeheartedly on the whole like event space. And like when you go to events and you're first starting and that whole process. And I also think a lot of it is really, I don't want to say smoke and years, but kind of like, and people just really want to get caught up in the networking and the (laughs) founding and like what's going on. And like, I, I really tried to stay out of a lot of that personally, because 
I felt when I got caught up in a lot of it, I, it was detracting from my end goal. And it was, and I was so much more focused on like the smoke and mirrors networking and being associated with certain people versus moving my business forward. And when I finally realized that like a lot of that wasn't moving me forward and I focused on my business, then that's when we started moving forward. But you have an amazing story about how you met your advisor. How would you suggest to people who are listening that they go about looking for an advisor if they were, if they were to seek one out? Yeah. Well, I felt like my advisor found me honestly. Um, and I have, I've had incredible people like, you know, donate some time or like we'll review something. I've had a lot of those kind of more short, short term, but in terms of an individual who's like stuck by the business for the last four years, like consistently, um, Mike has been that person. And I think it's, it's, it's a, it's a different type of advisor. And so my piece of advice would be definitely seek individuals who can do really short, quick, you know, asks for, you know, that you have, whether it's review things or maybe intro you to someone that you're trying to set a meeting with. I think it's much easier if you have like very quick asks that you can kind of put out there. That's a different process than finding someone who's going to be um, a, a regular resource and almost a partner in helping think very strategically about business growth and how to get to scale. Um, and I think it's harder to find that individual because simply because of time and bandwidth. Yeah. And I think it, there was also um, the fact that, you know, he was retiring and now had more time and, you know, but was retiring very young and was taking on other projects and was being very selective about where he wanted to put his time. So there was an alignment that just happened. And well, oh, I, was say, I was just going to say, but there's also something too about the fact that you connected with him and kind of kept him in your connections. And so exactly. that's, it, that's, you know, another thing that I think is so important to point out that, that someone might not be, you know, ready to help you or in a place to advise or give you whatever it is that you need, whatever the resources in that moment, but exactly. it goes back to keeping your connections close and staying in touch with people. Yeah. And because he thought of you. Exactly. And I agree 100%. And I, I will, I will switch gears a little bit and talk about the importance of kind of communicating. And so I try to not like overwhelm people with emails or, you know, keep in touch with them in a way that might come off as annoying, especially an individual who may have a lot on their plate. But what I will do regularly is every couple of months, I have a list of people who have either um, made an intro or helped me in some way. And I'm talking about all the way from like 2005 to now. And I'll just, it might be once or twice a year, I'll just send them a personal note of update. This is what I'm doing. This is what we've done so far. And it's not like a formal like report or anything, but just like a quick touch base, a few sentences. And that is actually how I was able to get into MGM because I met the procurement director who was working with their uh, supplier diversity team to support local businesses in the DC area because they were opening up a location nearby. 
And we met at uh, an event and, you know, I gave him samples and he was like, oh, maybe my wife will like this. So he took them. And then every couple, you know, I would send a note. I sent, of course, you know, within a week, I sent a follow-up email. It was great meeting you. We'd love to stay in touch. And every couple of, I would say every maybe six to eight weeks, because I was trying to get in, I would just send him a note, just wanted to touch base, let you know kind of where I'm at and check in. And so what happened was they had actually changed the design of their building and decided to include a spa very last minute. And when they decided to do that, he, he sent me a note and said, hey, guess what? We're actually going to build out a spa in our location. Would you like to be introduced to the spa director? And I was like, absolutely. So then he set up a meeting, met the spa director. She you know, loved the products, the mission, everything. And that process, though, took nine months. That was nine months from meeting to getting that introduction, but something strategically changed with their business that allowed for that opportunity to present itself. And because you were in front of him, he thought of you. And that's why this is such good information. Like you just gave a soundbite that anyone (laughs) who's listening can take away and apply to any aspect of their life because following up and communicating and staying in touch is key. It's it's key. I mean, I have a client right now who is a CPG who is from you're a friend years ago, years Mm. ago. And I ran into her this summer. Her kids were going to camp together and I ran into her and I said, and she asked me about bump club. And I said, actually, no one knows, but I'm in a couple of weeks I'm leaving. And she said, oh my God, maybe you can come do a project for me. I need help with like awareness and storytelling and this. You know, and I was like, absolutely. And it was like, you know, she and I had been in touch, but I couldn't have touched that project previous. I had a full time job. I was running a company. I was running a brand. And exactly. so now and now she's one of my clients. Yeah. Exactly. You know, so you just to your point, you have to just it's important to nurture your relationships and your connections. Keyword nurture. Yep. Absolutely. You know? And yeah, it's a, it's all about timing and we didn't talk too much about this, but on my journey, I've also realized when I had a goal and I didn't achieve that goal in the time frame that I wanted to, um, when I look back, I can now see my own um, shortcomings as a leader. And part of the, re- if I had gotten what I wanted at the time, I would have fumbled it. And yeah, I was probably, I was fumbling already, but I would have fumbled it even worse. And so, especially during kind of COVID-19, when we were all forced to stay put, it really made me kind of dial into my own leadership skills, my communication skills, my listening skills. And I think that sometimes when things aren't working out for us, it's really important to dial in and get in touch with areas of our lives and areas of our own self that might be prohibiting that. Because I think a lot of times we want to point to external factors and there are a ton. And the truth of the matter, if you're a woman-owned business, you're going to face a lot of challenges. If you're a woman of color, there's also additional challenges. So I don't want to undermine that at all because I live it every day. But I've actually now realized that when it comes to the pace of a business in terms of growing and scaling, 
sometimes your own um, areas that you're not looking at addressing or dealing with might be a barrier to your success and your barrier and a barrier to you being able to to grow at the scale and at the pace that you want to, at least for me. <laughs> yeah, no, that is very sound advice. I, I would like you to, I, I have two more things I want to touch on. I want to be mindful of time, yes. but I, I would love for you to tell us first, where, where are you today? Where is Shay Aileen today? Where, like, mm-hmm. I mean, we've heard Macy's MGM, Whole Foods, where is your business at and how are you achieving your social mission? We are at a a phenomenal place. Um, 2022 is starting off with some incredible partnerships. Uh, We were selected for the Meredith, the global media company, company Meredith's uh, Mm -hmm. Good Impressions Program, which is going to allow us to really set a really much stronger marketing and advertising presence um, to their over 300 million audience. And I think uh, Meredith, if they recall the statistics, they, you know, 90% of all women in America, you know, they're able to access them. So I'm really I will tell you <laughs> my background prior to Bump Club is in publishing. And, oh. I, worked, and I worked at Hearst at Good Housekeeping and Red Book for 10 yes. years. So Meredith was my, the bane of my existence because they were my biggest competitor. But, <laughs> but I will tell you that you are in a great place because they have an amazing stable of media properties. And I think a lot of times um, CPG brands really underestimate the power of media prop of just media brands in general. And I know people yeah. don't necessarily pick up magazines as much as they used to, but those magazines are also digital media properties. And exactly. there is just so much opportunity to reach so many millions and millions and millions and millions of women across yeah. the country. So kudos to you on that. Yeah. So I'm very excited. Um, I expect this to be a really good year for us, but in terms of impact and, you know, our whole thing from day one has been creating living wages. So increasing women's income five times their country's minimum wage in the communities that we work in. But this also comes back from the self-reflection that I did a lot of in 2020. Um, <laughs> we I'm all involved. did, I think. <laughs> right? <laughs> like, am I a good person? Maybe I need to look at this up. <laughs> um, is something that I, I think is the evolution of my business idea, which is really changing the definition of competition and leaning into collaboration in a way that I think uh, is very contrary to how we are trained to be business owners in this country, but but is not foreign to other places. And so I am building the very first indie beauty manufacturing facility. It's gonna be based in Washington, DC. Um, I've raised over $2 million to set it in place in partnership with Uh, DC government's economic development office and a couple of other partners. And I'm like, so excited. And why am I doing this? I've realized that, you know, over the last 10 plus years of doing this, in order for me to really get to the scale, it has to be much more than just my brand. And I want to create a global movement around how we source ingredients that affect women in indigenous communities around the world. 
And in order for me to do that, I need to have incredible brands around me and founders who value the same ethos that I do. And the best way to do that is to create the community of those people. I, 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 yes. I, I mean, I have no doubt that this is going to happen because everything (laughs) that you're saying is what makes a brand successful. I mean, everything, community, communication, like every single thing that you have talked about so far today. I mean, yes, you are so smart in setting up what you are trying to set up to increase that global impact because you're right. You need, you can't do it alone. And a lot of people don't want to recognize that. No. And I actually think we're trained not to. Um, I think that we have a toxic relationship with competition, especially as founders. Everyone wants to be the first one. Everyone wants to be the only one. But if you really look at large brands, they partner. Mm-hmm. They're creating partnerships every single day. If I mean, you know, I literally tell people on a daily basis, there is enough business to go around for everybody. Oh, absolutely. I, absolutely. I, 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 and, and I, and like my clients will say to me like, oh, but did you see the, the, my competitor? And I'm like, who effing cares about your competitor? Like just focus on yourself and move yourself forward. Who cares? Like there's enough business for everyone. Your competitors creating demand for you too. Exactly. No, for sure. And I also think too, and this may also be unique to women and maybe even women of color or even black owned founders we're trained not to work with each other. We're trained to see each other as competitors in a way that, and I've experienced this personally, it's just so toxic. It's all women. And it's, yeah. it's, it doesn't matter what color your skin is. It's all women. <laughs> yeah. And I think to your point, if the, the universe is big enough, the world is big enough, the market is big enough. And we actually, when you're at a size level, you actually become competitive when you can partner with others because that's when you can improve negotiation. That's when you can get to scale. That's when you can uh, direct policy. That's when you can get government to the table. And the community that I'm building around indie beauty manufacturing, why is it important? Well, Shailena, as a one brand, we can work with a couple hundred women. If I have 10 similar brands, or 20 or 50 or 100. That means we're working with thousands of women. Yep. So that we were able to amplify, increase our impact. And if you think about it, my vision and goal with Shailene has always been about impact. Beauty is an, a means to an end, but, but the end is financial empowerment of women. I mean, and that is why we're having this conversation because I want to change the conversation around female founders to your point so that women aren't so competitive with one another, that they're sharing trade secrets with one another, that they're boosting each other up, that they're supporting each other. We need to be each other's champions in order to make that social impact that you're trying to make. Absolutely. Right? Yes. So before I let you go, One more question, because this is what I end all of our interviews with is I would love for you to share three things with our audience. If someone is starting a business tomorrow, recently in the next year, someone new, someone fresh, Mm -hmm. someone who hasn't been 
around the block like you and me. <laughs> what three things would you tell them? Three things I would tell a founder who's in their early stages of creating their business or their idea. The first one is become an expert in whatever field, sector, product, service. That is one thing that I spent so much time just reading, Googling, reaching out to people to learn, going to conferences. And it got to a point where people actually didn't know my name. They just remembered Shea Butter. And so some people just called me Shea Butter because all I would do is talk about Shea Butter. And it actually worked to my advantage because then when something comes up, they're like, oh, I remember this woman who was interested in that. And I would get people sending me, oh, have you looked at this program or check this out? And that's how I was able to get into um, Oprah Magazine when I first started through this leadership program that they were doing. So become an expert. Who cares that you don't have a lot of money? Who cares if your network is small? The number one thing you should focus on is knowing the ins and outs of whatever product, service, sector that you're trying to become a leader in. Um, so that's the first piece of advice. The second one is people over everything. Nurturing and creating the right relationships. Um, and it, it, it still blows my mind. Someone that I've met like at the airport in Chicago that, you know, exchange emails with years ago now on, you know, connected with me on LinkedIn and sends me a resource that allows me to do X, Y, Z. That happens all the time. And it's because of intentionally nurturing those relationships where people, it may not be a today benefit, but again, so many people will come back in your life that you'll be shocked about. And so that nurturing and maintaining and not transactional, not only just for, I want you to give me something or, but really nurture those key relationships and create as much as you can authentic relationships with people will be a game changer, especially when we realize and know that a lot of us, when we're starting out, we just don't have that many resources. People are going to be so, so important. And then the last thing is, you know, we have this whole self-care <laughs> mantra. Everyone tells you to take care of yourself. Everyone tells you to take care of yourself. And honestly, I was not that person. You know, I, like I said, the eldest of five, you know, I was doing laundry and making full meals at the age of 12 for my family, um, you know, taking care of my younger siblings. So I grew up in a in a, in a home and a tradition where you're just supposed to work really hard. And it gave me phenomenal work ethic. I'm really grateful for that because I know that my work ethic is why I'm where I am today, to be quite honest. And that was the household I grew up in and how my parents raised me. But it reached a point where I just did not know how to stop working. Like it really was very unhealthy. And Honestly, if it wasn't for COVID-19 shutting everything down, I don't think I would have recognized that. That was one of the learnings I had. So really being able to like take care of yourself in the process is going to be important. And I would even further say uh, taking care of your mental health and really understanding what your triggers are. What are some unresolved emotional stuff that, you know, we don't really like talking about in the business world. It's kind of like you have to be strong and like tough and 
you know, roll with the punches and, you know, but being a business owner is high levels of rejection. You're constantly being ignored. You know, people who could open doors may not because of jealousy or petty stuff, who knows, you know? So you're literally putting yourself in like environments where there's a high likelihood of failure. And then when you do fail, you have to figure out how to keep going. And then when you stumble again, you got that entire process, right? So the mental health piece is incredibly important. And the, you know, the resiliency and, you know, having to deal with all of the stuff that can get incredibly emotional. Um, if you don't have that su- right support around mental health, I think it can be really hard um, to persevere and get from year one to year 10 to year 15 to year 20. Rahma Wright, I <laughs> am blown away by you and all of your knowledge and wisdom and achievements. And I, I have literally been sitting here like pinching my arm saying to myself (laughs) in my head, is this really my job that I get to meet such awesome people who are making such amazing strides in our world? So thank you for taking the time to talk to me today and for sharing your story with the Dear Founder community. I know it is going to be one that people are going to be blown away by. Um, So thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. And I love what you're creating. And I really hope this is, you know, the start of of a long relationship. (laughs) Me too. We will have to nurture that. Exactly. (laughs) I told you, Rahama is so incredible. And what she's accomplishing through her brand to impact the world is mind blowing. She left us with some really amazing takeaways from today's episode. So here they are. Number one. If you see a problem out there, try to figure out how to solve it. Everything has a solution if you have the time, effort, and resources. You can always get to a solution. Number two, we're a global community. What we do here in the U.S. has impact on what goes on around the world, and what goes on around the world impacts what goes on in the U.S. Number three, don't just take money from any investor. Make sure that they also can bring experience and resources to the table. Number four, when it comes to funding, you are valuable in the process as well. You are contributing valuable ideas to the bottom line of your investor, and you can't forget that. Founders need to be empowered to feel deserving of the funds that come to them, especially female founders. Number five, nurture your connections and your network. You never know when something may arise that helps you further your business. It's all about timing. Number six, Sometimes when things aren't working out for us, it's important to dial in and get in touch with areas of our own lives that are prohibiting that. It's not always the external factors. Number seven, lean into collaboration versus looking at competition. We are trained to compete, but we need to be working together. Number eight, become an expert. Know the ins and outs of whatever product, service, or sector that you are trying to become a leader in. Number nine, You have to know when to stop working and how to shut it down. Recognize and be able to take care of yourself in the process. Take care of your mental health and really understanding your triggers and unresolved emotional stuff because being an entrepreneur is hard work. Number 10, beauty is a means to an end, but the end is financial empowerment of women. 
Brahma and her team have set up an amazing discount for our entire community. You can use the code FOUNDHER20 to get 20% off on their website. We'll link it in the show notes. I cannot thank you enough for being here and for joining us on today's episode of Dear Founder. Make sure that you follow at Lindsay Pinchuk and at Dear Founder on Instagram. You can also go to lindsaypinchuk.com slash freebie to download some of my tips, tools, and resources for starting a business and for managing the social media beast. Everything will be linked in the show notes. Don't forget, you can also join the Dear Founder Facebook community for more discussions to help propel your success. I go live there regularly to share lessons and to answer your questions. Plus, that's where I'll be putting all the info about my upcoming small business marketing bootcamp workshop. We have some amazing guests coming up. So please subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or follow us on Spotify or wherever you listen. If you know someone who wants to start their own business like Rahama or who has started a business or who has an amazing idea for a business, text them this episode. I guarantee you they will find it as riveting as you did. Or simply post it on your Instagram. Tag me and I'll reshare some of those to say thank you. I'll be back next week with another episode of Dear Founder. Dear Founder.